I mean, fundamentally, I think this is a very heated debate because there is money on the line and different self-interested commercial players are gunning for that money, either to keep it or to get it. There is a lot of political capital invested in this uh, when a number of government ministers uh, and, and a government have invested capital in forcing a number of companies to do something, then of course there is a risk that will look like they've backed down if they don't in fact accomplish some version of it. And then there are various people who uh, you know, make their living in part having strong opinions about things that, that also are weighing in uh, on this debate. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 25th, 2021. It's another episode of the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation and misinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Rasmus Kleist Nielsen, the director of the Reuters Institute and professor of political communication at the University of Oxford. We asked Rasmus to come on the show to discuss the fight between Australia and Facebook. After Australia proposed a law that would force Facebook to pay for content linked on its platform from Australian news sites, Facebook responded by blocking any news posts in the country. The company and the Australian government have since resolved the spat, for now. But the dust-up raises bigger questions about the relationship between traditional media and social media platforms, and the future of the media industry. We talked not only about Australia, but also about the role of social media in contributing to political polarization, the outlook for various business models funding journalism, and what political solutions other than Australia's might look like. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 25th. Rasmus Kleist Nielsen on Australia, Facebook, and the future of journalism. Rasmus, thank you for coming on the show. We we asked you to come on because you're one of the keenest observers of the media ecosystem, both online and off. And it sort of feels like with everything these days, diagnoses about the state of play are often polarized between the argument on the one hand that all these concerns about, you know, a post-truth era and disinformation are a moral panic and we we shouldn't be so worried. Or on the other hand, you know, democracy is doomed. Where do you fall on that spectrum? I mean, I think it's important to recognize we can have very serious problems and still perhaps sometimes risk overestimating their scale and scope or indeed their contours and dynamics, if you will. So I suppose the way I summarize the sort of the big picture and being very cognizant that this plays out in extremely different ways in different countries around the world, often in part because of political variation, but also other factors, is through the sort of lens of democratic creative destruction, if you will. I think we are seeing at the institutional level as sort of a political and, and democratic version of what Schumpeter, of course, famously called creative destruction, where there are some internal dynamics largely driven by the intersection between the market and technological development that is really challenging uh, incumbent institutions in many ways, news media as gatekeepers, the privileged way in which elected officials were able to sort of dominate the news agenda, and also the way in which the advertising market worked. And all of this, of course, is being disrupted by the move to digital media. And with that, the rise of dominant platform companies such as Facebook and Google, who are winning the battle for people's attention, uh, hovering up tons of data in the process, and are offering advertisers cheap, 
targeted at scale advertising that many advertisers choose to spend their money on in a way that is in turn, you know, further disrupting the news industry. At the same time, at the individual level, we're also seeing that the very same process of democratic creative destruction that disrupt some institutions, create new powerful actors, most importantly here, the platform companies, and present us with new regulatory and policy challenges and new questions around what the norms uh, of democracy might look like in the 21st century are demonstrably at the same time creating opportunities for those of us who have internet access in terms of expressing ourselves, in terms of accessing information, in terms of networking with others, while also subjecting in particular women, uh, minorities, marginalized communities, people of color to harassment, to hate speech um, and the like in ways that in some ways I think empower us as citizens, even though unequally and and in ways where the benefits uh, are perhaps available to many, but the disadvantage is less so, even as they also come at the cost of really sort of challenging some of our inherited notions of what, for example, privacy looked like, which used to be sort of a defining ideal of liberal democracy, but works very differently, of course, in the digital media environment. That's all a long way of saying I think it's complicated. I don't think saying it's complicated is a cop-out. I think it's sort of the responsibility of every serious analyst to sort of avoid these sometimes sort of, I think, quite unhelpful, very black-white distinctions. Uh, I think it's clear that there are many reasons to be really worried about many of the developments that are happening in the digital media space um, and some of the things that are happening with the platform companies. But more broadly, I suppose, my background originally is as a political scientist. um, And I think if we attribute the democratic recession that we've seen across the world uh, over the last more than a decade solely to changes in our digital environment and media environment, we are misunderstanding the very important role played by some political actors who are actively undermining the norms and institutions of democracy and doing everything they can to subvert the ways in which people in some countries were privileged enough to be able to hold elected officials to account and ensure that their governments were at least in part uh, accountable to the public at large and not only to powerful organized interests and and various parochial political figures. So fantastic. That puts a bunch on the table from, you know, the destruction of old media and journalism to the destruction of democracy. But let's start a little more confined with one of these issues, you know, you flagged at the top that we can have concerns, but maybe we don't need to overstate the the scale or the scope of them. And one of these that you've said you get asked a lot about is filter bubbles, where there's probably a lot of misconceptions about them. So I think the standard story goes something like this, uh, social media algorithms feed us content and connect us with people that we like and are more and more like us. And so we get less exposure to alternative viewpoints and we live in these little echo chambers that, you know, validate our point of view. And that that is at least in part responsible for the growing polarization that we see in society. What do you think of that story? And is that correct? Well, I mean, I think one of the challenges that we face in discussing these issues is that there are terms that are used both by scientists, often in quite precise ways, though not always, but are also used by journalists and by pundits and by politicians and others, often in much broader ways. There's nothing wrong with this, with the sort of overlap between natural language and scientific language. But I think sometimes it can lead to confusions and and, and even misunderstandings. So often what I experience is that 
people will talk about filter bubbles when their real concern is often something else. They will be concerned about what I think scientists would often call echo chambers. So the idea that some individuals live in uh, media environments and with information diets that overwhelmingly reinforce and amplify their pre-existing beliefs. They will be worried about polarization, whether effective or, or political, in terms of how people think about one another in a society and in terms of who they vote for and what those elected officials uh, stand for. Both echo chambers and polarization are very real. Echo chambers, though I think are, are often somewhat smaller than people might imagine them to be, are very real phenomena. They can be extremely consequential. For example, if a highly mobilized minority happens to capture a dominant party through a primary system or something like it, or just if they happen to be the swing votes in a more complex uh, political system with multiple parties and the like. And similarly, of course, polarization, often sort of seen as something bad, which it certainly can be, though I think we should sort of just recognize that sometimes when we talk about polarization as something bad, what we really mean is that we would like other people to disagree less with us, not us to disagree less with other people. And I suppose the the central thing I've worked with colleagues to better understand is the particular role uh, of filter bubbles. And as you just summarized, you know, I think we all owe Eli Pariser a great debt for introducing the notion and 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 offering this really important and plausible hypothesis that the commercial and technological logics of ranking algorithms would lead more of us to inhabit echo chambers and, and drive greater and greater polarization in our societies. This is an important hypothesis. It's very plausible. It might well be the case for some systems uh, or become the case uh, for other systems if things change over time. But what we have found in our research, this is across survey data, this is across passive tracking data uh, as well, where we sort of, with people's consent, track what they do on the internet, is that many of the algorithmic ranking systems, such as those that underlie Google search, those that underline the newsfeed on Facebook, such as those that underline parts of the timeline on Twitter and the recommendations on YouTube, seem to, for most people, not all, but for most people, have the opposite consequences uh, of what people seem to often assume or assert, which is that they tend to lead most users to more and more diverse sources of news than they seek out of their own volition. I think it's really important to recognize here, this is not some sort of perfect pluralist heaven where everybody uses all sorts of different sources of news, all sorts of different point of view, with all sorts of different political persuasions, not at all. We just need to keep in mind that most people don't use that many different sources of news, on average, maybe two or three in the course of a week. And it happens to be the case that people who are users of social media, who are users of search engines, who are users of video sharing platforms, demonstrably use slightly more and slightly more politically diverse sources of news than those who don't, controlling for other factors. And I said, we found this both in survey research and passive tracking studies. So I have a high degree of confidence that these results are robust, though, of course, they might change because the platform can change over time. Now, this is, again, not to suggest that there are no problems at all. Uh, it's simply, I think, that sometimes the focus on, for example, an issue like filter bubbles can distract our attention away from what I personally think is a far more important and broad-based consequence of the way in which information is accessed and filtered online, which is a growing inequality in how much news and information people consume. Because we've moved from a low choice environment where most people got some news most of the time, in large part because there was little to choose from. So you ended up watching TV news while eating dinner because there was nothing else on, to a high choice environment where 
personal interest and motivation matters far more in terms of what information people access and where there are many, many different systems who offer us an abundance of other kinds of content that most of us, much of the time, find far more compelling than watching the evening news or reading a newspaper, or accessing an app, a news app or the like. So, for example, in the United States, and this is a number that I think often shocks journalists and editors in particular, when we look at tracking data from Comscore, for example, in their big panels, we find that something like half of all Internet users in the United States do not routinely access any news sites or apps on their own. That's not because they can't. It's because tons of other things compete for their attention and they aren't necessarily interested enough or impressed enough with the news that they see actually existing news organizations offer to seek it out. Instead, they use other things. Sometimes they come across some news in the process of using those other things, but many of them don't. And that, for me, I think is one of the sort of great untold stories of our time is the way in which this environment that we so often associate primarily with political effects might actually have over time could have the opposite effect of leaving much of the public even further removed from political processes and from being an active part of collective self-government. You've done some interesting comparative work in in this space and on polarization, which seems to be a, a really rich avenue because, you know, of course, if there are different outcomes in different countries that all have social media, <laughs> uh, for example, that that might suggest, as you've kind of been indicating, that perhaps social media isn't responsible for all the, the things that are often pinned on it. Can you talk us through some of that comparative work? Is the U.S. A, an outlier in that a sort of polarization seems to be... Is, going hand in hand with uh, an increase in online news or are many countries experiencing the same trends? I mean, the U.S. is an outlier in many important ways and in other ways, perhaps not so much an outlier with all due respect uh, to the great citizen republic uh, that I myself had the privilege of living in for some time. When we look at the polarization in terms of uh, how people use news, the U.S. is a extreme outlier amongst the world of high-income democracies. It has a, a very particular kind of media environment where the majority of widely used online news sources have uh, an audience that sort of ranges from the center to the political left. Then there is almost nothing that caters to people who are from the center to the right. And then on the right, a few very large and a couple of small outlets, Fox News, of course, by far the most important there. It's a very polarized environment. The audience on the right was, at least till recently, uniquely consolidated around a single very large, very important, very prominent provider, whereas the audience on the center left was much more uh, set of sort of overlapping sources of people using different outlets sort of from the sort of fairly centrist old uh, broadcast networks to organizations with a more liberal audience, if you will, whether legacy like New York Times or new entrants like Vox and, and HuffPost. This is very, very different from what we see in many other high-income democracies where the market structure of online news provision is far less structured around political lines and much more structured around class and around geography and where most people primarily use news organizations that have very politically diverse audiences, often quite centrist news organizations, and where the differences in terms of what news people seek out is often much more about their level of education and income or where they live in the country in sort of federated structures like Germany, for example, then it's about their political orientations. And this way, the United States is a very, very clear outlier. There are other areas in which the United States is sort of less of an outlier. 
trust in news has been declining in many countries uh, around the world, not all, but many, as platforms, including social media and, and search engines and the like, have become more popular. This perhaps may be something that, that digital media and platforms have contributed to. And I think it's important we understand that better because clearly a crisis of confidence between much of the public and much of, of actually existing journalism is one of the challenges that we face in our societies. In this, in this instance, the United States have quite a lot in common with a, a number of other countries elsewhere, though, as with sort of typical American extravagance, uh, the crisis of confidence in journalism may be like everywhere else, only bigger in America. Yeah, that's that's for sure. So I think, you know, one of the really important things that you're highlighting there is how vital it is to place the conversation of platforms and our online information ecosystem in their broader context, whether that's societal or the broader context of news more generally, both online and off. And, you know, right now, literally as we speak, um, Congress is holding a hearing on the role of cable companies in, in spreading misinformation. But that's only after several hearings over the last few years with tech company executives. Better late than never, I guess, as they say. But we really have tended to focus Focus on the online ecosystem and platforms, almost to the total exclusion of offline media. And I'm curious why you think that is, why we tend to miss that broader story and what we're missing when we miss that broader story. Like, is it just because the, the online ecosystem is novel? Is it because, you know, offline journalism isn't great at talking about itself and its problems? Or is it something to do with the fact that, like, fixing the whole ecosystem and democracy feels so incredibly hard? So let's maybe focus on something that we, we can potentially fix. I'm glad you asked that. I have to say, I think it's a very hard question to answer. And I think it's it's one in particular that's hard to really sort of bottom out on the basis of evidence and analysis. But I'm happy to, you know, offer some thoughts on it. I think there is one sort of very clear reason why we are often all talking about platforms, which is that they are, the biggest of them are very big. They are very powerful. They're very important. And they've demonstrably been part and parcel of some truly problematic things in our societies, whether it's the spread of hate speech, various forms of uh, unequal content moderation that has often uh, hurt minorities of various sorts more, the spread of misinformation, disinformation, uh, including information operations by foreign states, uh, data protection and privacy issues, and on and on it goes. I mean, there are some really, really urgent and big issues that are become extremely clear in recent years and have brought, I think, a very welcome end to a sort of a period of sort of almost blithe disregard from the point of view of much of the political class and, and, and some of the news media for the way in which these companies sort of exercise power in societies that in the marketplace, but well beyond the marketplace, and also in ways that influence the way in which democracy and politics works. So it's new, it's important, it's worth discussing, and I'm glad that we're discussing it. Now, of course, the risk perhaps sometimes is that we end up discussing things either in isolation or at the expense of other important things. And I think this is sort of, you know, somewhat more potentially problematic. I mean, at the end of the day, if we want to sort of understand challenges and opportunities, contain the challenges, make the most of the opportunities, then it's really important to understand how they work and, and how different parts intersect. Otherwise, if we get it wrong, we're also going to do things that are not going to work or even make things worse. Why is much of the discussion then focused on the platforms in addition to the very real fact that they are extremely important and worth discussing? I mean, I suppose that I can sort of offer two observations. One is that 
some of the discussion is facilitated and and driven by journalists as a profession and by news media as a profession and with some really important and honorable exceptions you know market sullivan of the washington post brings to mind you know organs like the columbia journalism review and neiman lab in the united states bring to mind the profession of journalism and the news media as an industry i think we can safely say have been quite notoriously subdued in terms of living up to its own credo of sort of holding power to account when it comes to its own power. And while journalists often in private uh, and through various forms of subtweets and whatnot are often quite happy to critically discuss the way in which they and their peers and the institutions that they inhabit are exercising their power and pursuing their work in ways that are sort of keenly attuned to the imperfections and limitations of what they do, there is much less of a tradition of journalists and news media publicly through their news coverage and through the the public debate that they facilitate and drive, subjecting themselves to the same scrutiny that they subject other institutions to. I mean, this is the old observation from some media researchers that news media exercise power without responsibility. And the question I think was always, uh, in in some ways, this is a political philosophy question, who's going to guard the guardians? And of course, for a period of time in the UK, the answer was that the Guardian would guard the Guardians. If we looked at the coverage of, for example, phone hacking, but this is sort of, I think, a strong and long tradition, unfortunately, in the profession and the news media of not really trying to hold itself to account the way it would like to do other institutions. And of course, this is problematic in many ways, but perhaps particularly problematic in a point in time where much of the public is demonstrably really disenchanted and unimpressed with much of journalism and have many ways of expressing this. And what they see is a profession in the industry that I think in the eyes of much of the public, and we have survey research and qualitative research to suggest this, comes across to people as sort of, you know, bullies, if you will, uh, special interest, complicit with political interest or commercial interest, and not really doing what they claim, and, and, and I think sincerely often aim to do of seeking truth and reporting it, and holding power to account, but sort of, Essentially, just being another special interest in society. Now, I don't share that view, but I think it's a view that exists in much of the public and journalism has, I think, uh, and the news media have not really wanted to deal with that historically, or even in this moment where what we might think of sort of folk media criticism is pretty prolific uh, on many social media platforms. So that's about journalism and the news media. I think the other side of it that is at least, I think, sort of worth considering for a moment, uh, it's again, it's sort of hard to evidence it, but I I think it's sort of worth at least floating this idea is that, you know, we're living through a period of time in which in many countries, the political establishment and many other establishment institutions are facing a crisis of confidence. We've seen various populist politicians and other sort of self-styled insurgents that may or may not be more or less actual insurgents from the point of view of sort of who they represent and what ideals and, and, and interests they seek to further have, you know, to put it bluntly, have, you know, beaten the establishment, whether it's, you know, Brexit or Trump in 2016 or Bolsonaro. And, and there are instances of this across the world. Now, I mean, is it too cynical to suggest that if you are part of that old political establishment that has started losing elections see voters uh, abandon you in droves, vote for people and parties that, that you consider to be beyond the pale. Is it, is it too cynical to suggest that it might have a certain appeal to think that this is not about you 
it's about them. They've been brainwashed by, you know, bots and deep fakes and information operations by nefarious foreign agents on social media and whatnot, so that you don't have to ask yourself the question, well, you know, if people, you know, don't support me anymore, don't support people like me and start to support other people, is there perhaps something that I can do different? And and this question, I have to say, is 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 not one I've seen sort of asked with great urgency and intensity in much of the political class, even as long-established political parties have started to lose elections that they thought they would win and have lost power in, in societies and, and countries where they perhaps felt they had a sort of an entitlement, if you will, to rule. So that's a pretty exhaustive and I would say unfortunately spot on diagnosis of the many ills facing journalism right now. I will say one thing, as you say earlier, that does seem to be pretty related to both the decline of journalism and the sort of the rise of the platform economy and the internet is the way that the modern internet really decimated the business models of many media outlets. And right now, the outlook for journalism, frankly, looks pretty bleak in a financial sense. So how bad is it? And how much of that can we blame on the platforms as opposed to everything that you just laid out? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, the top line is very bleak. And much of that has to do with the commercial success uh, of the platforms. So, I mean, the short version of the story is that we had a low-choice media environment from my point of view as a user. And as a consequence of the low choice that I had as a user, news publishers and other mass media had high market power over advertisers and could demand and did indeed demand uh, very high rates. Even though, of course, in many cases, the audience was dwindling and aging. I mean, in the United States, print newspaper circulation has been in nonstop decline in per capita terms for more than half a century. And yet newspapers made boatloads of money because of their position in the advertising market. So we've left behind this 20th century world. We now live in a world in which as a user, when it comes to news, I as a user have very high choice. And as a consequence, individual news publishers have very little market power over advertisers and can't command the same rates instead. Advertisers are voting with their feet. They're spending their dollars with platform companies that offer cheap, targeted advertising at scale. They will sort of say things at Davos every year about how worried they are about various things. And then they'll continue to say, well, more money to Facebook, more money to Google and various ad tech intermediaries, but but largely uh, Facebook and Google in, in, in the parts of the world where the Chinese platform companies are not so uh, so dominant. So the success of the platforms, of course, is part of the challenge facing the news industry. But I think it's important to recognize the underlying shift that's underway and that the success of the platforms is based in large part on their ability to attract people's attention, to leverage the various network effects that allow them to sort of tie in different third-party complementers, including news publishers, collect a lot of data along the way, and then turn to advertisers with a really compelling product from the point of view of advertisers. Now, this is a super challenging environment for the simple reason that that the bulk of revenues that news publishers generate are still tied to print and to broadcast linear scheduled television. And both of those platforms are an inexorable one-way structural decline, and they will never come back. And they will have to find their way in a digital, mobile, and platform-dominated media environment where their position is fundamentally different. They used to be companies that thought they were content companies, but really were largely in the advertising distribution business. Now they really are content companies, and they will have to make their living off of their content with some revenues from advertising, but far less lucrative than in the past. 
as said, I think the top line is continued revenue decline for the industry as a whole for the foreseeable future. This is going to be really, really tough for many publishers, in particular local publishers and publishers that serve underprivileged communities that are not commercially uh, all that attractive to, to produce news for. But we should also recognize, on the other hand, that in some ways we should be more optimistic about the future business of news now uh, than we were a couple of years ago, even in light of the impact of the pandemic, which of course has been very severe, because we are seeing more and more examples of news organizations of different sizes and different kinds and different backgrounds that demonstrably are succeeding at doing distinct journalism that citizens value and are willing to not just pay attention to, but also pay for, and that people seek out and use even against the backdrop of incredible abundance of news and information that's available free at the point of consumption. It's absolutely extraordinary if you think about it for a minute. I mean, if you think about any other industry that have gone through the sort of the change in the competitive set that news publishers have gone through, they would be dead in the water. And while news publishers are in almost every case making less money than they did in the 1990s, some some will end up doing very well for themselves, uh, but but these are largely outliers. They should be incredibly proud that they're making any money at all, given how much the market has changed. And I think that does speak to the value of uh, of the work that many of them of them do. We are seeing this, of course, most prominently with brands like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Economist, the Financial Times. But I think really, really importantly, it's not only these sort of elite-oriented, upmarket English language global niche publishers that are doing well. Far more importantly, I would say, is the encouraging development that upmarket newspapers in smaller markets are doing well. Darkness Theater in Sweden. We have NRC in the Netherlands. We have the Times of London in the UK, uh, Politiken in Denmark, but also new digital-born entrants, whether they are Mediapart in France, El Diario in Spain, Malaysia Kini in Malaysia, Setland in Denmark, The Correspondent in the Netherlands that are building a demonstrably sustainable business of distinct, valuable, quality digital journalism. It's strange and kind of refreshing to to hear a note of optimism in your voice. Can you say more about what you mean by that, you know, we were seeing more high quality media survive, that things might be looking better than we might think? Well, I mean, I think the situation a few years ago were that, you know, reasonable people were having doubts as to whether there was any business model at all for, for journalism and news in a digital media environment. Crudely put, now we know for a fact that people like me uh, are going to be just fine, affluent, educated, interested in the news. In fact, we may never have had it better in terms of the quality and range of information we have available for free or for a modest fee. The real problem, it seems to me, is different. It is uh, what, if any, are the sustainable business models um, or alternative nonprofit models for news that serve uh, less privileged communities, whether they are communities that historically have been ignored, marginalized, and even sort of demonized often by, uh, by journalism and news media, whether they are poor people. Um, whether they are smaller local areas that, that may not have the critical mass to sustain a sizable news organization. So I'm going to be fine. In fact, you know, my life may grow better and better. Um, just another reminder of the injustice of the world, I suppose. But the real issue, I think, is, is quite different. It is that 
it used to be commercially very attractive to operate very popular, very mass-oriented news organizations, and that's clearly no longer really the dominant business model. Um, so it seems to me that the real issue we face is, is again, information inequality, both in terms of who seek out the news, but also who it makes sense commercially to produce news for. Great. So it's impossible to talk about you know, journalism's business models and the platforms right now without talking about the topic du jour, which is the Australian bargaining code. And, you know, as with everything these days, there's very polarized opinions on this. You'd almost think that people are looking at completely different laws, given how different their conclusions are about it. So the general picture is that Australia's media landscape is, as the locals would put it, a dog's breakfast. It's one of the most consolidated in the world, and journalists are dropping like flies for all of the reasons that you mentioned just now. And so to correct the power imbalance, basically the the Australian government developed this bargaining code that would force Facebook and Google into mandatory arbitration with local publishers if they failed to strike deals for payments for news that those outlets shared on the platforms. Google did strike a deal with the Murdoch Press, but last week Facebook went nuclear and banned all Australian news on the platform. And then a few days ago, Facebook and the Australian government announced that they had, in fact, struck a deal. Details still unclear that would allow Facebook more time to negotiate and uh, hopefully come to a solution. But uh, Facebook has reserved the right to turn off the news tap at some point in the future. So as I said, you know, some people think all of this is a complete mess and Australians, the Australian government should be ashamed of itself. I sort of tend to err in that direction. But others say, you know, this is world pioneering legislation and how could Facebook do such a thing as to blackmail our beautiful and innocent little country, uh, which is just trying its best to be a healthy democracy. So <laughs> what do you think of this whole situation? Well, I mean, briefly put, the the bargaining code is uh, creating a framework for negotiations between a limited number of platform companies and a large number of Australian news publishers that is designed to strengthen the bargaining position uh, of news publishers from the observation that some platform companies exercise very considerable market power. And that is meant to encourage business to business commercial deals in part by creating a situation where if no such deal is struck, um, there is a binding arbitration under terms that platform companies would argue uh, benefit the publishers and that uh, policymakers might say, well, that's kind of on purpose because we want to create a situation where we can have some confidence that platform companies that historically have been unwilling to pay for most of the news that they distribute will in fact pay Australian news publishers uh, for at least some of the news that that comes uh, via the platforms. I mean, I think that the, the sort of the polarizing nature of this debate is in part just because it's important and it's political. And when there are high stakes uh, and when politics is involved, there are lots of different actors who have a clear self-interest in sort of ramping up the temperature in the room, uh, whether they are lobbyists or elected officials and the, and the like. And this, I think, reflects that situation. Part of it is also that I think uh, some people have been wondering about what the you know, what the consequences uh, would be of passing this and, and whether those consequences are aligned with what would help uh, ensure the sustainability of different kinds of, uh, of, of public interest journalism in Australia in the years to come. I mean, fundamentally, I think this is a very 
heated debate because there is money on the line and different self-interested commercial players are gunning for that money, either to keep it or to get it. There is a lot of political capital invested in this uh, when a number of government ministers uh, and, and a government have invested capital in forcing a number of companies to do something, then of course there is a risk that will look like they've backed down if they don't in fact accomplish some version of it. And then there are various people who uh, you know, make their living in part having strong opinions about things that, that also are weighing in uh, on this debate. I mean, I suppose that the, the thing that I think we're still sort of trying to understand is what will be the ultimate outcome of this code? And how well would that be aligned with the stated purpose uh, of the code? I mean, I think we can see from the business-to-business deals that have been entered into uh, either already or at least uh, in, in principle between Facebook and Google that if one accepts the way in which Josh Friedenberg, the Australian treasurer and one of the leading political figures involved in the discussion, described the aim of the code, uh, he said a few days ago that We want the digital giants paying traditional news media businesses for generating original journalistic content. Then the the whole discussion has at least accomplished part of that in the sense that digital giants, Google and Facebook, look like they will be paying some traditional news media in Australia some money. Whether it will generate original journalistic content, you know, that remains to be seen. I mean, of course, the money goes from one company to another, and there's not necessarily any way in which we can assess whether it helps fund uh, journalistic content. But the goal, this is Friedenberg's stated goal of transferring money from digital giants to traditional news media, at least the, the biggest ones in Australia, is demonstrably being accomplished. Now, whether it will help other issues that I have outlined, and I think some in Australia feel that Australia may uh, face as well, such as helping ensure that uh, there is local news provision, helping ensure that there is news provision for marginalized communities and underprivileged groups, uh, helping ensure that there is news provision for the whole uh, Australian public and not just for those who are privileged enough or habituated to consuming news from established large publishers. I think that remains to be seen. There's been some concerns about that. And of course, More fundamentally, there's also been some concern about whether the code risks effectively incentivizing uh, at least some publishers to become even more reliant on platform companies against which many have many reservations and may risk, as Twitter suggested in their submission at an earlier point in time uh, during the discussion, may risk, in fact, entrenching the dominance of the largest platforms by creating a regulatory environment in which publishers are incentivized to provide special content for those who are willing and able to pay, however begrudgingly, and have fewer reasons to share content with those platforms like Twitter, Snapchat, and other much smaller platform competitors that are not in a position to or willing to pay news publishers for their content. So the the stated goal of the Australian government forced the digital giants to give money to traditional news media. I mean, that's demonstrably happening. But whether and to what extent it, it addressed some of the wider issues that I think many would say that we face in our uh, news media environment, that is a separate question. And of course, there are a number of concerns that, that, that others have raised about what does it do if one in the process of addressing the very real power imbalance that exists between individual publishers and large platform companies, if one in the process of trying to address that power imbalance ends up giving special privileges to news publishers and news publishers exclusively, so not 
everybody else who competes for attention and advertising on the internet. This is a concern that's been raised by some tech companies. What does one think of a regulatory framework that holds up at least the possibility of, of quite sort of detailed regulatory and government involvement in commercial negotiations? This is something that various business groups and employers groups in Australia have expressed some concerns about. And I think that, for example, a newspaper like the Wall Street Journal historically has been quite skeptical of, of whether sort of government regulation should be such a sort of direct and active part of commercial enterprises. But fundamentally, I think we've seen that the Australian government seems to have achieved much of what they wanted and have been very clear about what they wanted to do, which is to ensure that more money uh, went to traditional news publishers such as News Corp and Nine uh, and others. And indeed, they've been very openly champions uh, of these companies. I thought it was quite striking a few days ago that Josh Friedenberg again said, we're very close to some very significant commercial deals, which is a, an interesting locution for a government minister who presumably is not striking commercial deals on his own or on behalf of the government, uh, if this is meant to be between platform companies and publishers. But indeed, such deals are being struck. You said that the, the world is watching what's happening in Australia, because it, at the very least, that this sort of problem of platforms and Competition with old media's business model is something that needs addressing. So I guess two questions for you in these last few minutes. One is, what are other countries doing? And if you think we'll see more of these kinds of attempts. And the other is, what other models are there? Um, if the Australian law is perhaps not perfect, but there is a problem, how else might we solve it? Well, I mean, I think uh, perhaps I'm simple-minded here, but... It strikes me that often it tries to make sense to to try to define the problem before trying to solve it, and, and ideally relatively clearly. So if one accepts the Australian government's definition of the problem, how can we make digital giants pay traditional news media, then the Australian code clearly provides a model for it, whether it's a model that risks reinforcing the winner-takes-most dynamics, uh, where larger publishers are, are those who benefit the most, whether it risks increasing uh, the reliance of commercial publishers on platform companies that they have many reasons to have reservations about and that we have many other reasons to be worried about in, in different ways, and whether it, in, in fact, as Twitter and others have expressed the fear uh, of further entrenches, the already dominant incumbent uh, platform companies, those are separate questions. If the goal simply is that traditional news media should make more money, then demonstrably the code is successful. Now, it's up to elected officials and to each of us citizens to make a decision about whether that is the problem we are trying to solve. I have outlined that perhaps there are other problems that at least merit consideration uh, rather than primarily worrying about News Corp's bottom line and, and Nine's bottom line. And if one sort of defines the problem in a different way and say, well, how can we ensure that there is journalism for everybody? not just for people like me who might be happy to shell out for a subscription to a newspaper online or in print. Uh, how might we ensure that there is news everywhere so that there is not only um, these sort of often quite centralized groups thriving, but also local news provision? And how might we ensure that there are uh, sustainable business models available for news publishers that do not force them to engage with platform companies if they choose not to to want to because they might have reservations about what comes with that engagement, then there might be other policies available. So many of these are, are well-established. They have clear proof of concept and, and 
you know, I, as I said, I think it's up to elected officials and each of us as citizens to make decisions about what we think serve the public interest and hold on the balance. But if one uh, is interested in not just reinforcing the winner-takes-most dynamics and, and risking sort of further entrenchment uh, of incumbents, both on the publishing side and on the platform side, then, for example, one could sort of target interventions specifically to support local media, if that's uh, where the problem is. One could target interventions to specifically support media that serve underserved communities that, that are often given a raw deal uh, across the world. And one could design interventions that are neutral to whether news publishers are in fact engaging with dominant platforms or not. And of course, such exists in Europe, for example, various ways of, of providing genuine independent public service media. Of course, parenthetically, something has been cut in Australia um, as well. It could be things like what we see in Denmark and some of the other Nordic countries where there are indirect and direct subsidies provided on the basis of whether news organizations make investments in editorial that are capped so that smaller players and local players benefit proportionally more from these arrangements than larger players. And of course, there are legal um, arrangements in place in some countries like the United States that help facilitate and incentivize the, both the creation and funding of nonprofit news outlets. None of these needs to be either or. I mean, it's perfectly possible to 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 pursue something like Australia if if one is happy to to use policy to to transfer wealth from one part of of the private economy to another, and if one is. Um, feels that the possible adverse side effects of the Australian codes are justified uh, in the interest of the greater cause of transferring this wealth. That's a political question. But I hope that policymakers around the world will, in addition to being inspired by the Australian willingness to act, will also at least consider whether perhaps there are other policies that can help us achieve some of these different goals, not all of which uh, I personally think are effectively addressed by this initiative in Australia. All right. That's all the time we have. Rasmus, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.